right, everybody, welcome to show 57 here on Crypto Voices. Happy holidays. Matthew Majinskis, your host here from Latvia. We're going to mix it up a little bit here as we uh, approach year end, have a bit more reflective uh, episode on Bitcoin and crypto. And uh, rather than interview, you know, perhaps a uh, prominent guest in the Bitcoin and crypto space, we are actually going to interview one of our listeners, one of our power listeners, in fact, I would say. Uh, he, he's been very active since the early days of our show, and uh, I'm really looking forward to picking his brain and chatting uh, about how he found Bitcoin and crypto and uh, what he's looking forward to uh, next year. So our guest is Nathan Simmons. Nathan is uh, active on uh, many forums, many Slack groups, uh, many different Telegram chats. We don't actually have any of those, but he's uh, always been uh, reaching out actively to, to us on Twitter uh, and in other places. And he's got a great mind and a great, uh, I think, overall perspective on Bitcoin and crypto. Uh, he has a background in sales and tech for 10 years, uh, from cellular to SaaS. And I think he's a uh, self-described tech nerd, uh, tech support guy for family and friends. And unfortunately, it would have been great to uh, have him in Brazil today because uh, Fernando, uh, after recording in his uh, XP office for about a year uh, since he moved there, just got blacklisted from our podcasting site. <laughs> so he's dealing with that right now. Uh, perfect timing, of course, but uh, we're going to go on without him. So uh, with that, Nathan, thanks a lot for joining us here on this uh, last show of 2018. And uh, welcome. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, I was definitely a little surprised when you reached out to me to see if uh, I would want to do this. And uh, at first, I was kind of like, what would I possibly add to this show? And uh, then I thought about it, talked to my wife, and uh, you know, it just kind of made sense that uh, you guys might want to pick the perspective of, of someone who's representative of your audience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think... Um you know, sometimes we uh, we just get caught up in in trying to ask all, all the technical questions, all the uh, academic questions, and uh, sometimes it's interesting to uh, to hear from a listener. And uh, I, I've been thinking about this for a little bit, and uh, definitely you're the first person that came to mind. Um, so why don't we start it off? Tell us a bit about yourself, you know, a bit about your background, and uh, you know why Bitcoin and crypto became interesting to you. I mean, that could be a, a really long story, but uh, I'll try to give you the, the Cliff's Notes versions here. Um, As you wish. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it's always interested in technology. I mean, uh, my group of friends growing up were the guys who tried to send up an intranet between our houses so that we could play StarCraft. So um, definitely been kind of along that vein for quite a while. Um, was interested in smartphones as they started coming out. And uh, I actually didn't really like the iPhone initially. And it and I hated Blackberries. They were just a pain in the butt. Um, I was involved in a few different projects where companies were trying to figure out how to get the calendar data that was on their computers to actually go live to people out in the field so that if something changed, they didn't have to have a secretary call them. It could just pop up. And uh, took Android coming out for me to really be interested in that. And uh, I actually went through a phase where I, didn't, I refused to text for about a year and went back and got a phone that was a bar phone. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, eventually found my way into working for T-Mobile. Did that for quite a few years in a variety of roles uh, before deciding that I wanted more. And I went to do software as a service because I figured software really is eating the world and that's the place that you got to go. 
Um, then ended up working for CenturyLink for a while, uh, just selling internet services, some cloud services, uh, gigabit um, connections, uh, worked with a few data centers that needed direct connections all the way out to China. So pretty fun stuff. Um, how I found Bitcoin was actually listening to an Audible podcast series called The Dark Web, and they had one episode where they talked about Bitcoin and the Silk Road and everything like that. And my first thought was, that's really interesting that that would even work. How, how in the world did this work? How in the world uh, did the authorities not catch on to this quicker? And um, I also searched my memory banks and uh, remembered that when uh, myself and some friends were playing World of Warcraft for a while, somebody had offered us at one point to buy some special formula thing that we had in the game that there's only so many per server, but they wanted to pay us in Bitcoin. And we were like, what's that? <laughs> That was uh, 2010, so it was really, really early days. So that person's probably rich now if he kept any of his Bitcoin. But uh, we decided not to do it because we were sitting there going, we don't want to get banned. You know, this game's the thing that we do as a hobby right now. <laughs> that was more important to us. And uh, we didn't really look too deeply into Bitcoin uh, at that point in time. But uh, after I heard this Audible series, um, one of the guys that was working at CenturyLink uh, was very into crypto. He was one of those guys who was always looking at the charts and seeing stuff go up and down. And at first I thought he was really pretentious and I was like, what, what are you doing? What, what is this? Why are you doing this at work? This isn't a thing that you should be doing at work. <laughs> and, uh, but then I got to talking to him and he got me to read Andreas Antonopoulos' books, Internet of Money. And um, once you go down the rabbit hole um, so far, um, there's not an end in sight. So. If anybody's early on here, be prepared. This will somewhat uh, capture your, your life. Uh, I heard someone refer to it as mental capture at one point, and it's definitely true because first you'll study Bitcoin, then you'll study whatever other projects in the crypto space kind of align with things that you might have been interested in anyway. And then you're going to end up studying computer science or programming or cryptography or Austrian economics or some other field. Like There is so much here. Um, I think this is a field of study that the potential's there for it to be something that people study for their entire lives. Yeah, and we were talking about um, you know the topics that we talk about on this show, and I think I'd like to touch on a lot of those that you just mentioned. But before we get to that, you mentioned uh, your busy life and your your family. I know you have a, a brand new baby, and uh, it's it's going very well. So congrats again on that. Thank but you. Uh, I think it'd be enlightening to hear. You know, from a, a curious mind, someone that uh, tries to take in a lot of information, and I know listens to to our show and and reads some of the things that I suggest uh, via text message, and certainly is involved in many many other shows and many other uh, message boards and and reading links and things. How do you find the time, and how do you structure your sort of education on this massive topic that is? Bitcoin and crypto, because it is massive and I think it's overwhelming for many, many, many people and probably will be for many years to come. Yeah, that makes sense. I think uh, the best way to explain my process would be to go back a little bit to how I first started learning. So my family at the time was my wife and my kid, who was uh, anywhere from one and a half to two, two and a half as this got going. But uh, the time that I had to myself at that point was walking the dogs. So I just started finding uh, material that I could uh, consume and absorb in that 
uh, context. So podcasts came in very handy because when I first got into the space, I thought, oh, of course, there's going to be lots of books. And I'm used to learning through reading, thinking about it, maybe reaching out to someone online to you know, peel their thoughts off of it. And uh, there aren't a lot of books or the books that are out there outside of, you know, Andreas Antonopoulos's, Chris Berniski's, and a couple others are just like, hey, this is how you invest and become a millionaire doing penny stocks, but it's crypto. And it just looked like garbage. So um, you start going down the space and you realize the people that are into this aren't using the, what I would have considered the more traditional avenues for education and for just, you know, putting out the information that they have. So I found some podcasts. I found yours fairly early on, which really makes me happy because it helped me start thinking about this more as an economic phenomenon than just, uh, you know, chase the casino kind of thing. Because uh, especially when you're first getting into this space, it's very tempting. And, you know, within a month or two, everything was going up like two, 300, 400, 500 percent. So you're like, oh, I put in $10, now I have 20. Wow. You know, <laughs> so you kind of get uh, sucked into that. So uh, listening to podcasts, and I was just very consistent with that time. I'd go out, I'd walk the dogs, I'd listen to something, or maybe I'd found an article, I'd read that. Um, started realizing a lot of people talk on Twitter, found that a lot of people were on Telegram, and just started bookmarking particular things that I wanted to follow back up on. Um, so that's how I started. And then you slowly realize that there's a lot more here. So, um, especially talking to you and realizing some of the economic um, maybe even political considerations, you realize that there are entire fields of study that go along with this. Um, so fortunately, at some point, I had gotten a Kindle, and I have the kind that lights up so that I can read at night because I don't know what other time I'd really find in the day. Um, I get my kids down, and my wife normally goes to sleep too because she's exhausted, and um, I'll sit there and read for an hour or so. And uh, I know you and I have had some conversations about this, it's really important when you're sitting down to actually read for a while to shut off whatever device is going to be interrupting you constantly, right? Because our phones are supposed to be tools, but they've become uh, dopamine delivery machines. Uh, mm. And we, sele we self-select all sorts of things that give us those shots of dopamine by giving us the notification that something happened. Um, I think one of the best things I did in that regard was right before we went into the hospital to have our second kid, I turn notifications on Twitter just off. So now I check Twitter when I want to check Twitter. And I can go in and, and see if somebody's responded to something, keep a conversation going that route. Um, and just feel like I really have control of that back. Because otherwise, you know, you're getting tweeted all the time, day in, day out. You've got Telegram, that's going on day in, day out. I have notifications on that off. Discord, I have notifications on that off. I basically ended up turning notifications off on everything I possibly could so that I could still get access to information but when I wanted to and not when it was interrupting me from doing something else. I don't know if that's a good answer. I think I might have gone a little off on a tangent there. No, no, it's uh, it's right on. I mean, this is, uh, again, this is our reflective Christmas show here. <laughs> I totally agree with you and I've, I'm not a power Twitter uh, user, uh, but I, I have never had notifications on for that reason. Um, you know, my handle is, as our hardcore listeners know, is the show's handle and um, usually I'm just posting around the show episodes Maybe a few things here and there, but the uh, for me, you know, when I'm trying to 
focus, read, and explore things that are Bitcoin related or maybe tangentially related, you know, to money and banking typically, which you know we try to focus on. It's just too hard with notifications. And I think one of the other things that you've told me, which uh, I wanted to point out to our listeners, which is important, and I actually haven't done this uh, when I, when I when I go back to the U.S., which I didn't actually do this this holiday season, but I will uh, go back. Uh, early next year, as I, as I do want to get a dedicated e-reader, and I think as you as you mentioned, right, you have a right when you turned off uh, Twitter notifications. Ha- how long had you had that dedicated e-reader? Did you get that about the same time, or have you had that for a while? Oh no, I'd had that for a while. Um, I kind of started transitioning over to digital books um, quite a while ago because I'm the type of person who will potentially be reading as many as five, ten, twenty different books at a time because I have different interests and I might be wanting to read fiction or about a particular topic at any given time. So it's not practical to bring 20 books with you everywhere that you go. Um, so when, um, when these devices finally had a, a light that worked, um, that was kind of when I started doing that. Because otherwise, you, know, you have to turn a light on to read, and um, that's disruptive to other things um, in your life. So. That gave me the freedom to read at a time when it made sense to me that uh, it was better for my life situation for the lights to be off. <laughs> you know, all the parents out there know, like when the kids are asleep, you you want to keep them asleep. <laughs> exactly, and I think it's a it's a great you know it's a great thing to keep in mind. I mean. Um, you know, it's just a simple, simple concept. I had an early, early Kindle. I think it was, I think it was this Kindle two, and it did not have a backlight. But the, uh, uh, you know, the smartphone came on soon after that, and you know, like an early iPad I had, but that was more connected. And I just never went back really from there. I was, you know, reading on my phone more, and as the screens got bigger on the phones, I've, I've never had the dedicated e-reader. But since you suggested it, I think I definitely will do it. And I think that's uh, probably a, another world that will save uh, myself time, as far as not getting pulled away from uh, from important and, and interesting uh, articles and books. You know, when you need to focus on them, and you know, when you actually have the time, not to just after five minutes of reading, you know, jump back on Twitter or something. Yeah, totally. Um, having that time to not get interrupted. I mean, especially the types of books that I imagine you're reading um, based on some of the ones that you've suggested to me. Uh, it takes really getting into the flow of thought to understand <laughs> what they're talking about. Um, I will sometimes end up picking my phone back up to look something up or <laughs> you know, find uh, a reference uh, to something that I don't want to forget to look up later. So have you gotten far in your journey of, uh, of Austrian economics and uh, monetary theory? Yeah, not as far as I'd like. I'm uh, only so far into human action. Um, I read, um, I think the first book, that it's not necessarily really Austrian economics, but Mervyn Cain's book, The End of Alchemy, uh, was just a phenomenal book, and it really got me more interested in the space. Uh, and at that point, I kind of looked around um, as part of my quote-unquote crypto uh, studies. I had read Debt, the First 5,000 Years and uh, The Unauthorized Biography of Money by Felix, I think, Martin. And uh, they both talked about things much differently uh, than I had ever heard before. Um, but I didn't think they necessarily had the full picture either, um, which made me more curious. And at the same time as that was happening, I was kind of going more down the Bitcoin maximalist hole. I read Safetyn's book, um, the Bitcoin standard, and uh, I'll probably get flamed for this, but uh, even though I think he's right in his approach, uh, I think he made some really big mistakes, and um, I don't think that he 
I mean, how are you going to fit this into a book, the length that he wrote? Uh, but there are definitely parts of history that he definitely glossed over, uh, which I think helped make some of the points that he made. Um, and obviously, I'm not an economist, so it's not like I can have a real argument with him about it. But um, I think that uh, what I appreciate about his book is that it's such a strong opinion uh, and he explicates his thoughts so well that you can test your own thoughts against it and see where uh, your thoughts break down or where maybe you disagree very easily. He's a very uh, good person to have that specific viewpoint from. But it also made me think that I needed to go back and uh, actually study Austrian economics itself. Um, so I picked up Human Action, and I will tell you that is a bear. No doubt. <laughs> <laughs> I picked up some Selgin books too, and I just haven't... Uh, haven't finished reading any of them yet because I feel like human action is the one that I have to get through first, if that makes any sense. Well, cover to cover, it's, uh, it, that, that's a challenge for anyone. I, I certainly haven't done it cover to cover, but um, definitely having it close to your desk and be able to refer to it. Uh, the index is good and it is, a, uh, it is definitely, well, obviously you can, you can digitally search that now anyway with the, with the EPUB versions. But maybe just to get back really uh, quickly to Saifedean, you know, we've had him on the show. What did you like about his work? And then what you mentioned that there was something you, you maybe didn't like or you thought that he was making uh, an error on. What, what was that? I'm trying to remember the exact specifics now because it's been a while. Um, I had shared with you a couple uh, articles um, where people broke down uh, some of the mistakes that they thought he had made. And um, I think some of it has to do with um, how much the gold standard is really responsible for the prosperity that happened during that time frame. And there were more economic thing, there were more things that happened in economics than just uh, the gold standard existing. I mean, you had the revolution in um, double-ledger double entry, which changed everything. You had the first uh, public company, uh, the Dutch India, Dutch East India Company, releasing stock in their ventures, which wasn't something that people had really done before. They hadn't pooled resources like that outside of being a governmental body, as far as I understand it. Um, so there were a lot of other changes that were going on as well. So I think that the errors he made were errors of simplification, and I'm pretty sure that he did it uh, in the interest of having a more readable book, because if he really tried to break down all of that other stuff, um, I don't know where it would have led or how long his book would have to be. He would have to write the Bitcoin action instead of uh, human action. <laughs> um, yeah, indeed. But uh, I think in general, uh, I definitely agree with him about uh, the implications of sound money and uh, the implications of having a longer time preference and how, that, how you view those things uh, changes, whether you want to spend something or whether you want to invest in something or whether you want to build something that could potentially do more for you later. Um, but, uh, I, I mean, a lot of people, I think, would disagree with his characterization of art because, uh, I mean, I don't know what artists he knew, but I know a lot of artists in the modern frame that do spend absolute years working on projects. And, um, I mean, it's a very different type of art, to be sure, than, than the classical art that he praised so highly. But uh, just the ad hominem attacks against other... <laughs> Artists just kind of seemed a little silly to me. Um, I agree that um, the scope of some of the projects that are happening these days definitely don't compare to the scope that was happening at the time. Um, but, you know, people couldn't uh, travel across the world as easily then either. There's been a lot of other changes. And I just think it's a mistake to isolate uh, any particular idea or try to um, 
simplify down ideas to a, an easier explanation because all that stuff didn't happen just because of the gold standard and just because they had sound money. There was a lot of other factors. Yeah, yeah, and it's complicated. You know, we've had uh, Eric Vosculon from the Bitcoin. Uh, he, he disagrees uh, with Safedine about some of those points, and he, uh, he he usually makes the point when he speaks about the gold standard that it was a complete disaster the way it ended in terms of uh, centralizing and being uh, controlled. Uh, most of the you know monetary physical gold being controlled under the large uh, central banks and eventually by the by the United States, which is not something that I would disagree with. I, I definitely think that there are parallels to draw from the gold standard, and I, yeah, I, I agree. I think that Safedine did his best to do this in a readable way, and I, I definitely uh, I think that was. Uh, was a great uh, a great book for Bitcoin in uh, you know for in 2018. Uh, any other sort of thoughts on that, or maybe another uh, book on crypto or or Bitcoin that you you liked? I mean, I like uh, Andreas Antonopoulos' books. Um, I will say that uh, Safetine's book, The Bitcoin Standard, um, I think it was the most important book that came out for Bitcoin in 2018 because I think that conversation is very worth having. And uh, ultimately, those ideas that he's putting out there, I think, are the ideas of this battlefield. If you're going to look at you know, all the different factions that are out in the space as being at war with each other for supremacy or, or ultimately ending in one global currency, um, those thoughts are going to be relevant, whether he was right or wrong, or a mixture of both. And uh, I think there was a mixture of both, and I don't know how much of it was due to simplification. I definitely, uh, things Eric Voskill says make a lot of sense to me. Um, so I think if I was going to err away from safety, and I would tend to err more towards his uh, thought process, or even towards um, you know, a, a Selgin process of thought where perhaps some amount of fractionalization will happen. I, I just think that that's going to happen to people who don't understand what Bitcoin really is. Um, I think that the biggest misunderstanding that uh, the institutional space that's coming in is going to have is the cognitive bias of not being able to get somebody to understand something that's in their best interest not to understand. And um, I think that's where a lot of conflict is going to arise because they're going to see this as something that they want to control or profit from, and Bitcoin's just not going to give a shit about their plans, and it's going to break some, and others are going to succeed, and I think we're all going to be surprised by where this ends up. Um, I think the next book that um, made the biggest um, impact in my thinking right now is just Mastering Bitcoin by Andreas Antonopoulos, because at a certain point, you see some of the arguments that people are having on Twitter, and you realize that at a technical level, you don't understand... <laughs> why they're arguing about the points that they're arguing about. And that made me realize that I think I need to understand this better at a base level. Did you read Mastering Ethereum? Not yet, no. Um, I, I haven't finished Mastering Bitcoin yet. It's a, it's a dense book for someone like me who doesn't have the, the programming knowledge. That's again, if you talk about a journey from uh, someone's view about what they think crypto or blockchain, quote-unquote blockchain, could be, it's it's always an interesting uh, topic to see where they where they fall on Ethereum because it's it's had bigger ups and downs in price and it's had bigger, uh, in my opinion, uh, categorical forks such as what happened with uh, Ether and Ether Classic, which is interesting. Any views that you've had there? What you might originally thought about Ethereum and if your views evolved or changed over the years? Yeah, um, I think coming into the space. 
I was immediately very suspicious that Ethereum could be successful in any meaningful way. And then I also noticed right away that um, by the time I'd gotten into the space, all it seemed to be being used for were people making uh, quote-unquote utility tokens. And I didn't understand how Ethereum thought that all of these different programs were going to run on the VM that they were making uh, with its current capabilities and uh, computational throughput power. I just didn't see it uh, being realistic. And then we got a really good demonstration of that with uh, CryptoKitties literally breaking the network. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's just one of those ideas that I think someone might be able to figure out how to run a distributed computation program all over the world. But I mean, that's a, that's a problem that's been, that's been in computer science since the 60s, 70s, 80s. And uh, people just haven't come up with a good way to do that yet. Uh, one of my friends, um, in real life is a data scientist. And so I've picked his brain about uh, some of these ideas. And uh, he's really interested in the idea of distributed computing. Um, but based on what my conversations with him have been, I think that the, the project that seems like it has the most likelihood of success in the way that it's set up right now is one that um, I think has its own problems because, <laughs> uh, I don't know, it, it seems to fall into the kind of scammier side uh, in the way that they interact with social media. But uh, Elastos seems to have an idea where um, the computation's all done, distributed in the cloud, and you're just running an interface on your phone. So um, it goes back to the idea of uh, terminal consoles, uh, which is how old supercomputers worked. A lot of people would access the same computer. They would just do it from different terminals. And then that one computer would run all the different processes. Um, Ethereum just doesn't seem to have an interface that makes any sense for a user of an actual DAP. Um, when people use it, they seem to be running APIs um, that go out to websites or, or apps or something. I, I just, I'm not understanding how that's going to scale or going to work. Um, and uh, I, I got a little out of my depth there. Um, that's kind of putting together a bunch of stuff, much smarter people than myself have, have <laughs> told me in conversations, but uh, I've always been very skeptical of the idea that Ethereum could work. And then um, seeing what happened with our community with Ethereum Classic, um, I definitely feel that Ethereum Classic is truer to the original vision of Ethereum, um, if you think about it as code is law and um, you want to have a certain level of trust in the ability of the computations to be verified and uh, not rolled back. But on the flip side, um, I think that the Ethereum Foundation and Vitalik are just trying to figure out how can we make a worldwide VM even work. And how we started is definitely not that, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Um, but my interest in a platform VM when I initially got into the space uh, made me more interested in like Neo and Ontology and some of those other projects that came out. Um, but my thought, uh, especially going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and trying to understand Bitcoin itself, um, I, I, th I think I'm really, uh, initially when I studied those projects, it kind of made sense to me that a certain amount of centralization from the get-go was a good price to pay to get product operational and running and being usable for people. Because um, one of the things that impressed me about the whole quote-unquote neo-smart economy was that they had an app I could actually run on my iPhone and I could access everything and every token, every project that was part of their ecosystem. And I wasn't seeing that 
in Ethereum. I wasn't seeing that in Bitcoin. A lot of people are like, ah, mobile's garbage, it's insecure, and you're not gonna be able to run this stuff on it. But my thought process was that if this is gonna scale, most of the people that are on the internet maybe only have a mobile device. And so for a while, I went through several months where I challenged myself that anything I would do, I had to be able to do it on my iPhone, or I just didn't see it as a, a viable project now. But my thoughts have changed uh, since then going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and trying to understand Bitcoin itself a lot more, you start to realize the power of the um, imps that are um, uh, contradictory to each other, right? So you've got miners, you've got developers, you've got the users of the product, and you've got um, people running full nodes. So you've got a whole bunch of different stakeholders, uh, a whole bunch of different people in the economy, and the thing that would necessarily be the best for one of them is automatically not going to necessarily be the absolute best thing for the others. And so Bitcoin has to come to this like really painful, long, strewn-out um, uh, compromise between all of these disparate groups. And I think now, um, having gone back and watched the success of that, I mean, if you look at 2018, you go from Everybody being like, ah, Bitcoin's done, it didn't scale, it's garbage. Um, and all these other projects saying, I'm better than Bitcoin because of this or that or whatever, I'm faster, I have more transactions per second, I'm gonna do all this other stuff, I'm a platform, I'm gonna do this. Uh, I have privacy, I have fungibility, and, and all these other different things. And I feel that a lot of those projects have had a really hard time um, keeping a coherent conversation going throughout 2018 as their price went back down. And I think it revealed that a lot of people were in the space, not so much for the technology or for these ideas that really challenged the way that we live our lives day to day. They were in it for the casino effect. And uh, now I think that that trade-off of centralization um, to get product out the door sooner uh, might actually not be worth it. Um, and that actually makes it, I think, very, very difficult for other projects to get off the ground because there's so much mining power out there. You've seen the 51% attacks on all of these smaller projects because um, the security of the chain, the security of proof of work, the you know, transmutation of electricity is something that's meaningful on the internet and scarce um, has accrued to one chain. And uh, until someone figures out a way to spread that around or not be or, or be immune somehow to um, those machines getting turned towards their network. Um, I mean, Bitcoin is definitely going to be the king. Hey, everybody, just want to take a moment to tell you about our product sponsor for this episode, Crypto Tradesmith. If volatility and FOMO is just too much for you, Crypto Tradesmith will help. By signing up for Crypto Tradesmith, you'll get risk management tools and over 50,000 trading pairs to help you manage your portfolio. Price your portfolio in dollars, price it in Bitcoin, price it in Litecoin, as you wish. You'll get custom email and text alerts when a volatile point or trailing stop is triggered. You'll also get access to Dr. Richard Smith's proprietary green, yellow, red light indicators and a ton of other great tools such as Portfolio Risk Analyzer and Rebalancer. This is risk management software. This is not day trading software. It's amazing. We endorse it. And by the way, if you use it, you can manage big picture Bitcoin portfolio strategies like stop loss and buy orders completely off book. Your exchange will never know what your strategy is. So it tandems very well with managing your own keys which you should do. So sign up right away on our special offer page, cryptovoices.com slash tradesmithoffer, 
patreon.com slash tradesmithoffer. You'd be helping the show out, cannot endorse the product highly enough. And also check out episode 55, where we interview the founder of Trade Stops and Crypto Trade Smith, Dr. Richard Smith. When you look at Bitcoin itself, you know, the continuous uh, fracturing of the communities in the forks, uh, whether the forks perform at all or some leaders that emerge that continue to sort of uh, disrupt it and fork it further, as we've seen with, with uh, Bitcoin Cash, it just shows that Bitcoin, from its network effect on what, what is Bitcoin, you know, what are the correct, quote-unquote correct amount of Bitcoins, what is the correct uh, issuance rate, what is the correct difficulty level, all of these things, you know, we've I've certainly evolved and, and learned to see that yeah, there's there's only one that really has uh, that adversarial relationship still intact, and it is very interesting to see the the forks of Bitcoin how they develop. I mean, not even to mention uh, all the other code forks that have happened over the years, you know. And if we look back at the 2013 top, and you look at what were the top ten altcoins or the top nine coins outside of Bitcoin. Uh, it's actually an analysis I wanted to put on the website over the years uh, at year end, but you might have Litecoin maybe from, uh, from 2013 is the only one that remains. Uh, you know, even, even Ethereum now is passed by Ripple. You know, who knows if that trend will, will hold and Ripple itself, we're not too optimistic on its use cases, though they may find one. They may find one, but um, that itself is a long was a long trend in crypto a couple of years, you know, where Ethereum was on top. It's definitely been interesting for someone like me who's newer to go back and see that the projects that used to be um, the ones that everyone was talking about have fallen into relative obscurity. Um, there's a couple of them, and I don't remember which ones off the top of my head that I looked up, and it seemed like someone was still working on the code base, but I mean, I don't really know what's going on there. Um, to your point about Ripple surpassing Ethereum, um, I don't really think that coin market cap counts um, because I don't think it's a good way to value uh, the cryptocurrency networks and the value of effects and everything like that. Mm. Um, I definitely kind of like some of the work that uh, Nick Carter is doing with NVT and stuff like that because um, if you're going to look at usage, I think that you know Ethereum still would definitely far outstrip Ripple. Um, a funny side note about Ripple. Um, I ran into somebody that I used to work with at T-Mobile, and I made a Bitcoin joke just because I thought that uh, he was the type of person who might have gotten some interest at, at some point in the last year or two. And he said, oh, I don't know about Bitcoin, but Ripple, mm. with their uh, bank ties, or, I think that was really going somewhere. And I was like, really? <laughs> like, it's incredible. Only, one of the only people from my old life that I can even mention this to, and you, you like Ripple. But um, I asked him a question about it, and he didn't really know. So... Um, I'm not sure that he had a full understanding. I think he maybe heard it from someone else kind of thing because uh, the, the thing that seems to be enduring with Ripple is that um, the banks and the people that they're working with as a company, Ripple, aren't necessarily using XRP, the currency, to do what they're doing. So until I see a strong correlation between the, the need for XRP and what Ripple's doing as a company, um, I, I don't really understand why it exists. Yeah, it's incredible. And I think it is very illustrative of the newness still of this of this thing that is Bitcoin, this concept, you know, this industry. 
you know, we, we, here we are, literally on the eve of Bitcoin's ten-year uh, anniversary, and the amount of education, the amount of just the level of uh, of tact that sort of the quote-unquote general public has on the asset. You know, I, I talked about this on uh, I, guess, I think it was Marty Ben's podcast. You know, it's just it's just so low. Like you can't go, you cannot go to a mainstream media outlet to get any good. Bitcoin info or Ripple info. Yeah, it's just about price. You can barely go do that if you're on a business news. It's a little bit better, but even there, yeah, like you said, it's just about price. It's just about volatility. There's nothing more in depth that you can get about what these networks are and what they offer. But this is actually one of the things I wanted to ask you about because, you know, Fernando and I, we have our economics, finance, real estate, analog background. You've been in tech, uh, you know, tech and sales for. For a long time, and I think your perspective, I think, is interesting because it's not like you've been working at Google, but you've definitely. You know, I have some friends that have been in tech sales and whatnot. I mean, it's more sort of maybe it's a stereotyping because I don't have too many Google friends. But I mean, if you're in tech sales, my my perception, my stereotype is that you're still pretty close to like man on the street. Like, what does the average client want, need, demand, desire from? Any SaaS sort of product. Absolutely, you have to have a problem that you're solving. You have to have a, a gap that you can show in their current state to what their state afterwards will be and what that improvement looks like. And you have to be really good at uh, backing that up with facts. Exactly. And, and and what I was curious about is, do you find that clients are just still completely in the dark at Bitcoin? Is like, are people really just so far behind the curve from really? Being able to identify what it what it really is. A lot of the people that you're talking to in tech sales are actually not very tech savvy, um, but they make the business decisions, right? So they literally hire somebody so that they don't have to think about this stuff. So from that perspective, um, it's it's not a high amount of people that have any understanding that that I've run into. Um, the the closest guy, I would say, besides my coworker who is interested. Um, that I mentioned is somebody who um, does a lot of work to lock down his clients' networks so that they can't have employees who get involved in cryptocurrency networks from Eastern Europe and whatever other garbage and malware they're putting on their computers was kind of how he phrased it. So a lot of the people in the tech space see it as an annoyance and something that uh, people that don't really understand how anything works are getting involved with and uh, Mm. making their jobs harder. At this point, which I think is pretty true, um, and I'll just go back to my example of getting into the space. Right, so here's Bitcoin. Here's these interesting books about how um, we can disintermediate the banks and help all these people across the world that don't have access to things we take for granted. And then you do a little bit more research. The next thing you know, you're looking at the top twenty, hundred, whatever um, amount of projects that are on Coin Market Cap. So people end up looking at coin market cap and uh, basing their interest on, uh, oh, well, you know, it looks like this project's doing pretty well. It's up this percentage, you know, whatever. Maybe I'll look at that one and see if it looks like it has technical merit or if the team's real or something like that. And then being interested in projects because you notice them for a different reason than what they're actually about first. So if you think about what the space is really about and what, you know, quote unquote, Satoshi's vision might have been. Um, it was disintermediating um, a very corrupt system that not only um, doesn't service a majority percentage of the world's population, but 
constantly um, devalues the savings and the work, the time work value of the people that are contributing to the economy that um, they can even siphon off from in the first place, right? So initially, I think the banks were supposed to service people and help them do things that they couldn't do otherwise, provide capital so that there could be investments in uh, projects that you wouldn't otherwise be able to undertake. Um, but slowly, it has become, you know, um, a bunch of middlemen sticking a straw in a tube and taking their part, right? So like at this point in time, you know, why does MasterCard and or Visa and or Chase Bank and or somebody else need a cut when I go to Target and swipe my card to buy creamer for my coffee or something like that, right? Like it's getting kind of crazy and it's been one of those slowly, um, it's like the frog boiling in water, right? Um, people talk about, you know, oh, but we're the land of the free and all this stuff and you go, what? If you drop the Founding Fathers into what is happening today, they would be horrified. Um, but uh, I think I digress. So if you look at the space and what it's supposed to be about, right? It's supposed to be about um, censorship resistance, right? It's supposed to be about um, uh, not decentralization for the sake of decentralization, but decentralization for the, for the sake of, I think, mainly censorship resistance, um, but also to give people um, financial sovereignty um, but I mean, Satoshi didn't even know if this stuff was going to work when he tried it out, right? It was just this idea, what if we could do this thing and we could actually make digital scarcity a reality? That would then open a whole can of worms. And somehow, instead of focusing on that and focusing on projects that are really trying to do something good for the world or provide something for you as a user or for society as a whole to help restructure things in a way that's more fair, maybe more transparent, um, Everybody looks at coin market cap, and uh, you know, going back into my initial forays into the space, it's a really easy uh, way to get into the space. And I'm definitely guilty of going to coin market cap and examining a project because it had kind of a cool icon and it was up 45 percent, you know, day over day. Um, and then researching because of that, instead of really researching what is this group of people or network or whatever it is trying to achieve. And uh, when you look at it through that lens, I think you get a very different picture. And um, I think that's why myself, I've moved away from being interested in, oh, you know, Neo wants to do the smart economy because of this man. They're going to be decentralized eventually because they're going to have nodes from different things. But these nodes still need to be cleared by the people that run the network currently. And to me, that sounds like it's just going to end up being the same story that we have today, but recorded on the blockchain. And I don't necessarily understand the value of that. Whereas uh, with Bitcoin and a very, very few other projects, you have this uh, uh, diverse set of actors that um, have competing interests and competing incentives, and they're providing something um, that can actually potentially change things because um, the old system doesn't really work in the way that this technology is, is put together. Yeah, and I think um, for me, one of the big things that I think about regarding the time scale and the adoption uh, with Bitcoin, which uh, probably a lot of people are thinking about you know now I mean as, as mentioned you know we're, we're, we're coming up on 10 years pretty fast here and a lot of people have written about these these ideas and what they really mean for Bitcoin but Bitcoin is it is unlike anything it's obviously unlike anything in the financial world today but it's unlike anything in the in the social consensus you know social networked world. Uh, as well, you know, and, and it's it's it. I think it's still so early, like you mentioned, uh, 
The End of Alchemy uh, by Mervyn King, who I think is actually a, quite a balanced and reasonable uh, and not too cheeky the way he talks central banker, where actually will give you, you know, the facts that he sees them. Yes, he has, you know, the very old central bank behind him. And, uh, you know, he was doing things during the financial crisis that probably Austrians and free market types wouldn't like. But but he pr- was pretty open and honest about the problems in the system after he left his post as uh, chief of the Bank of England. And in his book, which you mentioned, he mentions Bitcoin as, as a possible, you know, uh, not not someone like taking over the throne or anything, but certainly something to keep an eye on, something interesting. And I think it's it's just uh, you know going back to your your clients and and friends and people that are somewhat interested in the tech world or should be more familiar with the tech world. I mean, we're just so far away from people thinking about Bitcoin like they think about the internet. Um, I'm just trying to say it's it's definitely uh, hit home this year, especially with the bear market, especially with uh, all of these failed projects, which a year ago at this time we we all uh, collectively should have known better. Um, and, and actually, I did. I don't know if you remember this this one uh, when I posted the Baltic uh, honey badger discussion on economics that we had uh, in 2017. So I posted that, that was in like November of 2017, I posted that in January of 2018. I did a small intro, which I normally don't do, uh, just you know, by myself on, on, on a question that I asked, which was about you know, how many of these ICOs are going to fail. You know, I said like 95%, Adam Back said 99% or something. But we were talking about this, the absurd valuations at that time. That wasn't even, we were on our, the ramp up had just started. Like uh, I think the next week we interviewed Roger Veer, and it was during our interview at past ten thousand dollars a coin. Uh, the ramp up, like of, of absurd levels, had just begun. But in January, I posted that that panel, and in that little intro, I said, you know, just just do a, you know, I know all this stuff is is new and breaking and cutting edge and so on and so forth. But just economically, just do a do do your own multiple. Think about how much revenue these. Platforms, these these coins, these uh, systems claim that they can generate. Think about how much their valuations were, how much they raised, and just look at how absurd that multiple is compared to like any other company in the world, so on and so forth. A- again, after such a tough year, price wise, after a uh, really, from my view, no one's in the, 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 the no one who's not down the rabbit hole really thinks about Bitcoin any differently. They just think it was a a bubble, a top, and whatnot. You know, and this is again something we've seen play out again and again and again. It's just going to take. It could take many, many more uh, of these cycles of these booms and busts, and and certainly many more years for you know the average person to just look at Bitcoin uh, like the internet. You know, and certainly I, I think it's where we, you and I, think it's going to go, and many others. So I don't know. I, I went on my own tangent there myself, but um, yeah, um, I think. Uh, that's a very, very valid way of, of looking at the space. Um, I know for myself, um, I kind of disagreed for quite a while um, that we were actually in a bear market um, because year over year for a very long time uh, throughout the year when everyone else was calling it a bear market, Bitcoin was technically still up. And um, I've, I'm still kind of a view, the viewpoint that the end of 2017 was much more of a strange aberration showing how irrational and manipulable the market was at its current state. Um, mm. Not necessarily economically, but uh, 
with people able to come in and, and play the casino effect, right? Because that's, that's not real economics. It's like people getting really upset that the stock market is down or really excited when the stock market is up. It's not right. necessarily the best way to view the economy as a whole. It, it's an indicator and it's an important piece of the puzzle, but it's not the entire story, right? There, there are a lot of other shows that I listen to where people be like, oh yeah, you know, nothing's really happening in the space right now because of this, this, and this, and whatever. And I'm sitting there going, are you kidding me? Now that I'm actually paying attention to Bitcoin, it seems like there's a new development every day. Like we have satellites in space transmitting the blockchain down. You've got another group of people who have a mesh network that allow you to use GoInten and transmit transactions off of the web itself. Um, the devs are working on Schnorr signatures and maybe the Dandelion um, protocol, like all these different things that uh, are trying to make Bitcoin better. Um, what the, the Bitcoin Optech newsletter last week, uh, I forgot what they called it, um, but uh, apparently they figured out a way to make the um, propagation of information across the network like 40% more um, efficient. And, and so it's really interesting to me to, to hear these stories from all the other projects about how they're going to be better than Bitcoin at this, that, and the other. Um, but when you get right down to it, um, the level of optimization that they're trying to do in Bitcoin right now is just phenomenal. But it's one of those stories where it's not sexy, right? You're trying to figure out how to make this one little piece of something that's super technical that maybe 10 people in the whole world understand 40% better or 10% better or 5% better. And that just doesn't sound like Bitcoin up 40%. Uh, in propagation uh, uh, efficiency. Exactly. That's not like, oh, it went to 10,000, whoa. So I don't know. I've kind of, uh, I've, ha I've had a contrarian view on the market because everyone says, oh, it's a bear market. I'm like, well, it's more like it's a market that's trying to find the price that some of these things should have been at in the first place, right? Because if Bitcoin itself is only this far and it's only 10 years old and it's only as proven as you can be in a decade, you know, how can you justify the valuation um, for a token on a network that you don't know is going to survive that may have only been around for a year or two, right? So Indeed. that's another way that I kind of like to look at some of these projects is to compare them to where Bitcoin was at the same timeline, if that makes sense. So for a couple, uh, there's really only two other projects that I think might be um, actually as open source um, and, and actually as, as potentially decentralized as Bitcoin, and they've had to make their own um, sacrifices and uh, uh, changes, you know, to protect themselves so that, you know, Bitcoin miners in, in, a, uh, in, in an aggressive pool can't just attack them. And, and that would be uh, Decred and Ravencoin both seem like they're trying very hard to follow that actual ethos and be cypherpunk and be open source. And that that level of decentralization and actually focusing on what the network does um, is much more important to them. Um, so for me, it, it's been a really interesting year to see how much fundamental work has been done across various projects. And uh, some of them have a lot to show and some of them don't. And um, I actually would kind of welcome a continued lack of exuberance in the market just to let some of the projects out there realize that maybe they're a dumb idea. There's no shortage of dumb money uh, coming into uh, these markets, but um, but that, that can actually be said about uh, many small, thinly traded markets uh, around the world, whether we're talking about stock or... Sure. And there's no question there's a bunch of dumb money in Bitcoin, too. Um, yeah, people coming in at the wrong time or for the wrong reason or for the wrong... Uh, 
uh, ethos of it. But you know, time will tell. And I think um, for me, it might take a bit longer than we all uh, sort of realized or thought or hoped. And you know, it's even last year when you're looking at some of those, as I was saying, quote overvalued metrics. And I don't want to keep it too much on price or whatnot. But I, I, I do think that with Bitcoin. It's finding it's finding the right footing in the markets, but the the big thing that price shows uh, clearly, I think, is is the it's a proxy for technological adoption, and it's uh, it's really a beautiful you know geometric exponential curve. Yeah, I definitely I definitely agree with that. I think uh, some of the problems in the space, uh, especially as uh, pushed up, I guess, by coin market cap, are a lot of projects are just trying to take a shortcut. Right, and I think at the end of the day, you can't take a shortcut to the type of value that a network like Bitcoin um, has. I think that the, the technological adoption is real. Um, it's significantly easier to use um, Bitcoin now than it was even a year ago. Um, I'm actually trying out an app on my phone that allows me to access the Lightning Network without running my own Lightning node. Which uh, which app is that? It's called Blue Wallet, and. Uh, it's kind of interesting because they have their own hub, right? Which kind of makes them a third party. There's no kind of, it makes them a third party that's running the hub for you. So you have to choose to trust that hub, which is kind of against the ethos of you know, Bitcoin as a whole. But on the flip side, it works on a phone. And one of the main reasons it can't work on a phone is because of the amount of you know, work and information that needs to be put through a node and tied to a Bitcoin wallet so the, so the channel can be opened and all that kind of jazz. So, I mean, that kind of stuff's happening in a bear market, right? So. That's why I think when the quote-unquote bull market comes back and people see, you know, basically so many of the things that people said, Bitcoin's broken and it's never going to work because of this, and we finally found that out last year, uh, they, they're past all that. So now what's the refrain going to be? So yeah, that was another thing I think that I wanted to talk about was um, there are a lot of people that you would not expect to be interested in this technology, and it's probably uh, likely not Bitcoin specifically that they're interested in, but at least the idea, you know, I mean, you're getting you're getting people from all walks of life, I mean, status, socialists, uh, all sorts of people, so I don't think that that's going to, uh, going to stop anytime soon. It's definitely interesting that uh, the people that I kind of agree with more about something like that are people who think that governments should be forced to use Bitcoin because of the transparency of the ledger and that it would force us to be able to then see what they're actually spending this stuff on or where these donations are coming from or things like that. And people could use chain analysis on the government the way that the government's trying to use chain analysis on us. Um, but for socialists um, looking at all of this, um, especially some of these uh, ideas with the blockchain or some of these other networks where they're using governance, on-chain governance specifically as part of their model, I could see them being interested in that for uh, the ability to say, well, hey, yeah, you know, this is what people want because we can prove that this many people voted for it and it's on-chain and it's open and we can transparently show you that this is what everybody wants. The problem with that is most likely if you were going to implement something like that, your identity would be on the blockchain as well. And so then it would be trivial to prove what you voted for. Uh, this identity voted for this thing, and so then everybody voted for it because you know that if you vote against it, you know you're going to prison or getting killed or whatever other um, means of uh, social exclusion is the in favor by the ruling party at the time. It's really interesting actually seeing China, I think, doing some of this stuff. You know, people talk about how the Black Mirror is such a crazy show, but uh, they're actually implementing some of this stuff in China right now, and I'm aware of multiple. Um, 
quote-unquote blockchain companies or networks that are working on um, making identity available on the blockchain for voting or property rights or various other things. So um, as much as this technology could be used to disintermediate government and um, you know, help the world become maybe a, a more fair place where censorship isn't possible, um, this technology can be twisted turned around and used to create even more censorship than we already have. Um, kind of going along with the psychological concept where people self-monitor their behavior and their words if they know that they're being recorded. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You know, each day you see a bit more freedom being taken away or a little bit less freedom in a place like Hong Kong, which is uh, unfortunate, at least from a you know, Western value type of thing. It's very unpredictable about how that might happen, but um, yeah, that's something I'd say that you know people in Eastern Europe, at least specifically, they from a social side they get along very well. I mean, there's a lot of Slavic people, Latvian, Lithuanian people are, you know, they're not Slavic uh, people, but all of the Central Eastern Europeans and Russians, I mean, they get along with each other. Uh, it's just a crazy thing uh, with the leadership. So we'll see what the what the leadership tries to do with this technology, but it seems like they're going to try to keep as much control as they can for as long as they can, even if uh, it's a fool's errand trying to control uh, something like Bitcoin. So we'll see. We'll see there. That's a really interesting point because uh, it actually reminds me, going back again to Safedean's points about time preference, uh, because especially when you break down how uh, especially some place like China or Hong Kong is step-by-step step slowly methodically, systematically removing freedoms, it makes you remember or maybe realize for the first time that this is a really long game. So it's important to have a really long time preference because uh, if Bitcoin's going to be successful, I think people have to really remember that Bitcoin itself is a really long game. It's not about any of the short-term stuff that's going on. It's not about the volatility of the markets as, you know, we might be in the end of a, an era economically and some of the volatility that we're seeing with crypto networks um, might be indicative of the, just how fragile the current system is as a whole because we've just poured on too much leverage on, on everything. So I think it's important for all of us, you know, if we want Bitcoin to succeed, if we want a decentralized censorship resistant uh, medium of exchange or store of value to exist in any way at all, we have to have the really long game in mind because uh, the people who uh, this is meant to fight in the long term, governments like China or even the way that the U.S. has gone in the last 10, 20 years of my life, um, they have a really long game too. And they know that if they put all this stuff into place right away and implemented these policies, everyone would rebel. But they're doing it slowly over time so that we're all the frog in the boiling pan. And uh, I think that's a just really important concept to grasp because Bitcoin is subversive because it has this long-term play. But the people who want to control Bitcoin and maybe use it for their own ends, they're going to be subversive along that very same line. Excellent, excellent points. Well, listen, Nathan, we're getting long. I know you have a toddler and a baby. Uh, maybe their patience levels are being tested, but um, it's the holidays here after just after Christmas. Um, and we, we took a little bit longer as well with Fernando's tech issues being blocked from literally every app we could try to discuss. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I want to be sensitive to your time here, but um, 
Any other you know thoughts, general big picture uh, learnings or or thoughts as you look forward to to twenty nineteen? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I've never been very good at predicting the future. Um, Nor I. I think uh, twenty eighteen has been a very good uh, year for people buckling down and trying to actually understand what Bitcoin really is and what it's trying to accomplish. And um, especially with people as popular as Nick Carter going out there and putting out different metrics, and you yourself with the different metrics that you put out and even bringing up you know, studies on monetary base, supply, and all this other type of stuff. Uh, I think when the next bull run comes, there's going to be a lot more good information that will allow people to try to understand uh, what this is actually about and that price action is actually um, a reflection of a much deeper process that's going on um, and, and that this really is a, a global phenomenon um, that would be really, really, really hard to stop at this point. Sounds good to me. It's a good spot to leave it there, I think. As we close it then, Nathan, where can our listeners uh, find out more about you? Uh, I don't know that they'll want to, but uh, I'm always on Twitter um, sharing podcasts or articles or things like that. Um, so uh, that's uh, Gig Horizons for now until I change my handle to something else. What does the handle mean? Uh, Gig Horizons, right. So um, when I was uh, making my career change into uh, focusing on you know, software eating the world, which was actually a, a little side note type thing that I had meant to mention earlier is that uh, Bitcoin software and I think it's eating the world. It's part of this whole phenomenon of us as humans trying to overcome the barriers of space and time, uh, which is that you know you can't transfer physically scarce items across the world in milliseconds. And we are so um, impatient as humans, we want that. So um, Bitcoin is really an attempt to um, make transportation a la Star Trek uh, real for uh, scarce items, which being scarce is something that we tend towards using as, as money or currency or, or savings or something along those lines, um, store of value. But yeah, so Gig Horizons was about, for me, the word horizon has always just been kind of like a romantic notion of um, the horizon is infinite, right? You can go anywhere you want to go in your life. You, uh, the, the, the choices you make today will you know, cause ripple effects throughout your life. and But you can always choose to make the next step no matter how far away everything seems like it's going or, or how overwhelming starting a new path might be. You can still make that next step today. And I chose gig because even though it'll probably be outdated in five or 10 years, that's kind of the level of, you know, gigabit speeds, gigabit this, gigabit that, that, that our current technology level is at. Um, it's not distributed evenly worldwide, but that's kind of where the bleeding edge is going. I mean, now we're going into terabits and all that kind of next level stuff. But um, for me, it was about uh, embracing where technology is and opening my horizons and um, you know, just, just keeping that, uh, that viewpoint alive that uh, doesn't matter what you did yesterday, you can still make a different choice, different choice today. And um, I think that's a really important thing for, for anybody's life. Is um, One of my favorite phrases actually comes from science fiction author that I follow. He tried to have this messianic character in this far-flung science fiction universe, and her message was simply, choose again. And people are like, well, what do you mean choose again? You mean, we're all making the wrong choices, we've got to choose something different? She's like, no, choose again. If you love your spouse, choose again to love them today. If uh, anything that, that you're finding value in your life, choose to do that again and, and pour yourself into it, because it's really easy as humans to get kind of lackadaisical and just go with the flow and do what's easy and do what's next instead of being very intentional about it and actively choosing that this is the life that you're leading. And who was that writer? Uh, his name's Dan Simmons, no relation. Uh, it's in the Hyperion Cantos. 
It's a four-part series. You'll find that in part four. Nathan, uh, I tell you, it's been a joy for me to do the show and uh, and learn uh, on the job and and interview uh, you know the people that we've interviewed. But uh, it's also been maybe a bit of an unexpected joy to interact with uh, listeners like yourself, who uh, uh, I'm really pleased. Uh, get something from the show, but also uh, interact with me and send me uh, great things to read and think about as well. So I really appreciate that from, from my side. And I hope that uh, you know we can continue that together as the years uh, go by here and we can see Bitcoin uh, grow into something special, certainly more than it already is. So it's been really great from my side. Really appreciate you coming on the show and uh, closing out 2018 here with me. Look forward to 2019 and talking to you again soon. Yeah, me too. Uh, I, I think that all of your listeners probably won't mind me stepping out of limb and uh, speaking on their behalf to just say thank you for all the work that you do. Um, I've really appreciated this podcast. It's been a, a really great companion. There aren't very many podcasts that I'll kind of try to drop what I'm doing and listen to it as soon as I see it comes out, but yours is one of them. And uh, also definitely to Fernando. Um, I, I definitely appreciate the work that you guys are both doing. I love all the charts on your site, and I love the way that you're constantly questioning how we're looking at everything, and maybe there's a better way to look at it, and what data can you bring to bear to maybe make this all more understandable. So really appreciate you. Keep up the great work. Uh, I look forward to you know listening to this show as uh, my other kid uh, slowly becomes a toddler, right? <laughs> That's fantastic, buddy. All right, well, we'll link to, uh, to your Twitter handle and a couple of those topics in the show notes. All the best in 2019. Talk with you soon. Thanks again. 